And so we say farewell to Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev, 1931-2022. to Goodbye to a man who did more than anything else to prop up the capitalist system. A man who destroyed not only socialism but the hope of socialism for two generations. A man who restored capitalism to huge areas of the world which it had been shut out of for almost a hundred years. A man who is remembered fondly by the most filthy collection of reactionaries the world has to offer, by the likes of Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, Olaf Scholz, and probably Vladimir Zelensky. A man who contributed absolutely nothing positive in his wretched existence, and whose death can only remind us that we must always spit upon his memory. But we're not here just to rant, though that may come into it. Uh, I'm here in an attempt to do a proper political obituary of Mikhail Gorbachev and what he represented. And so, whereas it is entirely appropriate to despise the man and all of his works, it is important to understand him and why he was able to do the things that he did. And what was he really doing? Was he truly a man so stunningly and crushingly naive that he thought he could secure social democracy in the Soviet Union? Or was he something more sinister? Was he something of a Western plant, as some people insist? Be looking at all of that, but more importantly, looking at why the system produced a man who within six years had completely destroyed the government that he was supposed to be running. What does that reveal to us about the nature of the Soviet Union, about the nature of Leninist political parties, and about the world in which we find ourselves today? Let us begin, though, with some basics. Mikhail Gorbachev rises to become General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1985. He succeeds two leaders who died in office after a very short time, and of course another leader in Brezhnev who died in office after 20 years in power. And that is the context in which Gorbachev was seen in his early period in office in 1985 as a younger and more dynamic leader for the USSR. The Soviet system was widely perceived by uh, leftists in the West and by some in the Communist Party hierarchy inside the USSR as being in a crisis. Now, indeed, there were problems with it. But how could Gorbachev, as even as the leader, have come in and secured the complete collapse of it within six years? Was the system really in that bad a state that one rogue leader could cause it to implode? And the answer is both yes and no. Yes, it was uh, facing severe difficulties, of course, but so was capitalism at the time. And in fact, capitalism has been facing severe difficulties for about a century. Um, but capitalism survives, whereas the Soviet Union imploded. And the answers as to why Gorbachev was able to do what he did lies actually more than 20 years before uh, Gorbachev came to power. But let's start with a basic run-through of what Gorbachev actually did that caused the USSR the, and the Eastern Bloc to utterly implode by 1991. Now, what Gorbachev does is uh, almost straight away um, starts a process of trying to negotiate his way out of the Cold War. And he does this for reasons that are actually understandable. The cost of maintaining the gigantic uh, Soviet military-industrial complex and the huge numbers of Soviet forces in Eastern Europe, the uh, enormous uh, Soviet nuclear missile capacity... All of that is very costly and a burden upon the Soviet state. That much is true. Gorbachev thought that he could negotiate a way to end it. And whereas, of course, you can never um, 
you can never rule out negotiations with your with your enemies. Uh, Gorbachev made a fundamental mistake straight away, which is that he sought um, a settlement at any cost. And if you've ever been in a trade union organization, you'll recognize what a leader looks like who seeks a settlement with the employers at any cost. The employers will immediately pick up on the weakness and deliver the worst deal possible. Now, Gorbachev tries to negotiate with Reagan, and they do meet, in, of course, in the infamous Icelandic summit of 1986. And Gorbachev immediately starts making large concessions um, to the point where um, the Americans don't quite believe that he's making these concessions regarding the status of Soviet forces in Eastern Europe, regarding Soviet missile deployments in Europe. And he keeps making these concessions all the way through the negotiations right up to 1991. And the reactionaries inside the United States government were actually taken by surprise that Gorbachev was offering so much and they thought it was a trick um, that this man would come over and basically offer to unilaterally give up everything. Um, now, they did, of course, reach an arrangement on um, armed forces within Europe. There was an important agreement on um, intermediate nuclear missiles and there was an arms inspection regime agreed between the two countries as to um, limiting their stocks of uh, intermediate range weapons and other forms of nuclear uh, devices. So you could say that that was a positive, but in terms of the actual positives, you got to balance it out with the negatives. And the negatives was this was a, an indication that Gorbachev was essentially prepared to give up anything as long as it meant uh, getting an agreement. And this was representative of his, his entire leadership style. The other um, big thing, of course, that he does is that he pulls the rug out from underneath the uh, leaders of the Eastern European Warsaw Pact states by essentially letting them know that the Soviet Union was no longer interested in defending socialism in those countries. And, of course, this encourages the growth of openly reactionary forces across all of the Eastern European states, which leads, of course, to the disastrous counter-revolutions of 1989. And the other most crucial thing that Gorbachev does um, is, in terms of the political arrangements within the Soviet Union, is that he removes the Communist Party's monopoly on power by 1988. Now, what was the danger in this? Now, Gorbachev thought that he was ushering some new era of uh, socialist democracy in, and he was probably sincere in that. Um, he was apparently fond of quoting from Lenin uh, in justifying what he was doing. Of course, all the revisionists had always done that. But the, uh, the Extraordinary Congress in 1988, of course, does away with the Communist Party's monopoly on power. And in the same year, um, Gorbachev passed a law around the liberalization of socialist enterprises. And what that resulted in was removing the limitation on the moving of capital out of the Soviet Union and, of course, into Western Europe and the United States. And what that was, essentially, was a license to steal. And this takes us to the heart of the issue as to why the end came so rapidly. Because for a long time, at least since the um, the Brezhnev era, probably earlier into the Khrushchev era, um, corruption and outright theft and larceny had grown within the upper ranks of the Communist Party itself, within the state enterprises, and of course within certain elements of the KGB. 
And what they were doing was a lot of these uh, senior officials who had access to privileges like the ability to travel on state business to Western Europe was that they were setting up bank accounts in Switzerland and other areas with minimal scrutiny, stealing large amounts of state funds and squirreling them away where no one could find them or no one wanted to find them. And it's also not accidental that the last two men who were in charge of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union's internal finances were both killed shortly after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, though officially their death was put down to suicide. But it's funny how these two men both leapt out of high apartment building windows in the same year. Um, Rather funny, that. So there was already a system established of open theft of state funds, um, which was, of course, generating more and more corruption within the higher levels. Now, Khrushchev at least recognized that this was a problem, Brezhnev pretended that it wasn't. And so under Brezhnev, even though the Soviet economy continued to see growth all the way up to, in fact, 1984, growth was still hitting the 3% mark. There was uh, a lot that was being drained out of the system via uh, massively corrupt practices, and it became a genuine and real problem. Gorbachev thought that by um, opening up um, bourgeois democratic reforms, that that problem could somehow be solved. Um, that this would somehow um, magically convert the Soviet Union into some sort of social democracy and it would do away with the problems in the party. Of course, it didn't. All it was was uh, it removed the uh, the final constraints on those officials who were carrying out the enormous theft of state and party resources and allowed them to take gigantic amounts of capital out of the country, uh, thus aiding their ability to push the Soviet economy into a final crisis, which sent it hurtling towards the final crisis of 1991. But I said at the beginning that we'd need to look back further than Gorbachev to find why all these things became such severe problems. And we indeed need to go back all the way to really the death of Stalin, the coming to power of Khrushchev, and Khrushchev's really um, the guilty man in terms of killing off the internal life of the Soviet party. And that's what proves to be one of the most uh, fatal things that came to be a gigantic problem in the Gorbachev era. Now, the problem of a communist party becoming a ruling party was one that Lenin and Stalin had grappled with extensively during their time in office. And it's a problem that Stalin was trying to find a way around in the 1930s in recently published documents that had been in the Soviet archive, documents that, by the way, Gorbachev had no interest in publishing. Um, It shows that Stalin was looking to try and introduce competitive elections for the uh, regional first secretary positions in the 1930s because these had become... Um, uncompetitive elections in the period of crisis in the late 1920s and early 1930s. But he, Stalin and Molotov, when they tried to move this through the Congress, were actually defeated. Um, and I'll be going into reasons that that was in future episodes about the Stalin period. And again, after World War II, Stalin and Andrei Zhdanov, his ally in the Politburo, tried to come back to this plan, but were again outvoted on it. It doesn't do a lot for the idea of Stalin as the dictator, the idea that he was outvoted on trying to introduce a further democratization plan. But it does reveal there is a problem, which is that Stalin was acutely aware of the fact that the the party had shown tendencies towards bureaucratization. And of course, later on, Mao Zedong makes the um, correct theoretical point uh, that the class struggle continues after the, the revolution. And indeed, 
This was a truth that Stalin was aware of, but never fully formulated into a actual theoretical work. Mao did more to do it, but then again, um, and it was also given a practical expression through the deep, deeply flawed and ultimate failure that was the uh, the Cultural Revolution. So Stalin was aware of the problem earlier than him. Lenin was aware of the problems um, that would come about, and both grappled with these problems. And Stalin is often is often condemned, of course, by Western critics and anti-communists as being the man who killed off life within the Bolshevik Party. But the declassified documents from the period of the 1930s, 40s, and early 50s show that up to the end, the actual life within the Bolshevik Party, or the, the CPSU, Communist Party of the Soviet Union, was still there. There were still debates to be had. There was still ideological contestation going on up to the early 1950s. It really dies after Stalin's death, after um, the coming to power of Khrushchev, though he wasn't confirmed as paramount leader until really after 1956, uh, when, of course, he makes his notorious um, secret speech. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that now. The secret speech, of course, was the speech that Khrushchev gave, though he leaked it to the press and the Western media beforehand, where he denounced um, Stalin uh, as a criminal, a mass murderer, an authoritarian, a man who'd killed many revolutionaries. Now, there's various different interpretations as to why he did this. There is, of course, an entire book by Professor Grover Fur, which claims that the um, most, if not all, of the claims put forward by Khrushchev in that speech about Stalin were lies. But why do that? It's an interesting question. Why go off and say that the man for whom you had worked um, and had worked closely with and had played a big role in building up the very cult of personality that uh, he was later to denounce Stalin for, Khrushchev that is, uh, why why do that? Why destroy the legitimacy of your state by making these claims? It'll be like the in the early history of the United States if John Adams had denounced Washington as a mass murderer, or if Thomas Jefferson had denounced uh, Adams and Washington as mass murderers. Um, why would you do that? Um, and the answer is, of course, that Khrushchev wasn't really interested in, in these, they're making this speech as a representation of truth. And indeed, it, much of what he has said in that speech has been proven to be outright lies. Khrushchev was actually repeating the wildest claims made by anti-communist researchers and pro propagandists in the West. Why was he doing that? For some of the same reasons, actually, that Gorbachev would do what he did 30 years later. Uh, Khrushchev was interested in the middle 1950s in doing two things. Um, initially, trying to negotiate an end to the Cold War with the United States and the Western Europeans, uh, believing he could peel the Western Europeans away from the United States into some new alliance, as Gorbachev would be suffering from the same delusion 30 years later, and also but to, to reorientate the Soviet economy around um, more light industry, rather than heavy industry. Now, why does that matter? It matters because Khrushchev, um, of course, doesn't emerge in a vacuum. He comes to speak for a layer within the, the Soviet bureaucracy who were in favor of a move away from heavy industry and into um, uh, light industry. And this debate 
um, had been raging within the Soviet Party in the late 1940s and caused Stalin to write a book um, criticizing this trend. Uh, it was the last his last published book on economic problems in the of the Soviet Union, and uh, just before he's deaf. And this wish to switch over to light industry away from heavy industry stemmed from the idea that um, within certain elements in the Soviet leadership that they needed to catch up with the um, the potential of the United States in ter- terms of being a consumer society, in terms of providing more consumer goods to the Soviet population. These aren't necessarily bad aims, but the problem was that, of course, the Soviet economy wasn't quite ready for that yet. And the switch over away from heavy industry and into light industry actually stopped the development of the productive base of the Soviet Union at a crucial time where um, in the, to the, up to the middle 1950s, the Soviet Union was actually starting to outstrip the United States in terms of its heavy industrial production. Khrushchev's sudden switch to light industry done, again, by diktat, not debate, by sudden rapid change in policy, um, helped to undermine that progress and set in, set in motion a series of events that would build up more pro-capitalist tendencies within the Soviet party. And this um, is confirmed by later evidence that uh, unearthed by actually a, uh, a British New Zealand hojerist researcher, a guy by the name of Bill Bland, chronicles this uh, change in Soviet policy very well in his book on what he called the restoration of capitalism in the Soviet Union. Now, I don't agree with Bland's conclusion that capitalism had been restored. I think that Mandel is more correct in when when he insisted that capitalism was not fully restored inside the Soviet Union until the final end because uh, commodity production in capitalist terms had not been restored fully until the last elements of the planned economy was snuffed out uh, by the uh, by the the Yeltsin era. But to return to the uh, what the role that Khrushchev plays in all of this what is true and what Bland demonstrates very well in his book is that they started to move towards more and more co- pro-capitalist reforms inside um, industrial management and production. They gave more authority to the factory managers to uh, deliver individual profit, which wouldn't be returned to the central state and then redistributed to other areas of the economy that needed more support. They allowed the uh, enterprises and regions to keep more of the uh, profits derived from the state industries. And of course, this creates a, a more imbalance because previously under the old socialist plan of production in the Stalin era, any surplus that was generated was redistributed to support weaker areas so that the country developed at a roughly equal level, or at least that was the idea, by switching it over so that the enterprises could keep more of these uh, profits themselves, they actually started to enable officials to build up uh, more petty power in their uh, industrial enterprises and their regions. And this causes the start of more and more corruption as the the uh, the factory managers were given an incentive to create more profit but at the same time were then demanded that they produce more and more and more so they actually started fiddling the books more 
and in order to uh, deliver the appearance of the, the meeting of industrial output targets in order that they could, of course, then get the other thing that was attached to the uh, delivery of profits, which was a, an even bigger bonus being paid for the delivery of more profits. And so when you put those two things together, like the profits made by uh, different enterprises being kept by that enterprise and the delivery of large bonuses to the factory managers for producing that profit by for meeting the targets every year, then you start to cre have more and more pro-capitalist elements creeping in. And you start to unbalance the economy between the different sectors and the different regions so that just as under capitalism, if a particular... Um, industry is very profitable or a particular area of a country is very profitable, more investment will go into that profitable area and less into other areas. Just look at what's happened to Britain. You know, um, the city of London produces all the major uh, all the major profits in Britain, uh, or at least the the biggest percentage of them, and therefore all investment gets channeled into the area where that is, and the rest of the country atrophies. And a similar process started to happen in the Soviet Union the plan of production starts to get skewed so that profitable areas get more and the areas that needed more support to develop their industries got less. And that was all under the plan come up with by Khrushchev's premier and also Brezhnev's premier, Alexei Kosygin. And you start to see um, Khrushchev become actually worried about the growth in corruption and nepotism in the bureaucracy that he was that his reforms were helping to cause and he starts to try and solve this bureaucratically by doing things like moving officials between posts every few years and he thought that this would um, avoid the building up of bureaucratic power bases so he wasn't completely stupid he was aware of the potential problems but this didn't really work either um, uh, for a variety of reasons including the fact that it was rather easy for officials just to change their job titles, for one thing, uh, particularly if they'd already built up a power base. And the other thing that starts to emerge that proves fatal in the Gorbachev era is something which comes about in the Brezhnev era, which is the growth of petty bourgeois nationalist formations. Some of them encouraged, of course, by our old friends in the CIA, but a lot of it grows up within the intellectual layers of the Soviet republics. So you want to know where some of the crazy bullshit in that goes on in Ukraine comes from. Well, it starts to emerge in the Brezhnev era of the Soviet Union. Um, the re-emergence of the um, petty bourgeois nationalism in the Baltic states, uh, the emergence of um, political clans running the Central Asian states under people like Nurse Sultan Nazarbayev, who's still just about around, and who was only recently finally removed from power in Kazakhstan. And what had happened okay, essentially due to the fact that Khrushchev confirmed himself in power by essentially carrying out a coup by having his rival um, for power in Leventry Beria executed and by sidelining and unconstitutionally pushing out of power um, uh, other people who opposed him like uh, Molotov and eventually Malenkov. And so Khrushchev had already undermined the 1936 constitution of the Soviet Union. He'd come to power with the support of the army in essentially a, um, a quasi-military coup. So he'd already trashed the constitution. He, was, he abandoned the socialist plan of production. He allowed the building up of uh, private empires inside um, the, uh, the, the, the formerly socialist economy. 
He, of course, oversaw a growth in um, bureaucratization, in the black economy, which emerged and started to uh, really take off in the Khrushchev era and got even bigger in the Brezhnev era. And this was, of course, marked by uh, because the factory managers um, had more autonomy under the Khrushchev period, now, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but autonomy has to come with scrutiny and there wasn't anywhere near enough scrutiny. Then scrutiny should come from the working class and it just wasn't there. and Or not, not enough of it anyway. And of course, some of these factory managers were turning over part of their production lines to producing things to be sold on the side. And so the black economy, the underground economy, merges with elements of organized crime. And this is something else that explodes in the Gorbachev era when their final constraints are removed. And so as we go into the Brezhnev era, that we are reminded, of course, of the old um, Brezhnev era joke about the, uh, the Soviet leaders on the train. Uh, the, all the Soviet leaders are on a train going somewhere in, across, in, in the, uh, the mighty interior of the Soviet Union. The train suddenly stops. Um, Lenin gets out and, and makes a speech saying that, um, uh, that the train should continue because we are um, heading, to, heading towards communism, comrades. And the inspirational speech causes the, the train drivers to push on despite the difficulties. And the train stops again. Stalin orders the, uh, the, the, the train driver to be shot and replaced. And then the, tr the new train driver takes the locomotive on for another uh, few miles. Um, it stops again. Then Khrushchev says, uh, tell the driver that socialism is just around the corner. And so the locomotive runs a bit further, and then it stops again. And then Brezhnev says, or well, Brezhnev orders uh, Gromyko and Kasigin to get out and rock the carriage, and then says, "You see, train is moving." Uh, a joke, but uh, revealing of a certain truth, which is that the Brezhnev era became one of stagnation and the allowance for corruption. Even the minimal measures that Khrushchev had taken, such as the attempt to move officials between posts every few years, uh, were abandoned. And this is where I'm reminded of an interesting point that was made by uh, the current president of China and general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Xi Jinping, who said in a closed session of the Politburo in 2012 that the, uh, they had studied um, the um, collapse of the Soviet Union in some detail. And one of the things that they found fault with was that the Red Army had actually been depoliticized. And it was this depoliticization which caused the uh, the ability of Gorbachev to collapse the state to be even more fatal, uh, because when the uh, the 1991 uh, uh, coup plotters tried to actually stop uh, the collapse of the state as they saw it, they were too late because they'd already lost control over the state institutions they were nominally the heads of, and when they ordered the army to do things, the army didn't. Uh, and Yeltsin was able to easily outmaneuver them and defeat them. Um, it's an interesting observation because, of course, the power of the political officers was drawn down in the uh, the period of the war, and political education in the army started to become very perfunctory after World War Two. And that by the time Gorbachev comes along, of course, it would all it had almost completely um, become something that was just regarded as a joke. And it speaks to another profound weakness in the party. Uh, from the Khrushchev era onwards, which is that the party's ideological production and uh, the the teaching of um, new car new cadres 
um, the uh, development of new perspectives became very stale. It was something that was done by rote. It was something that was just a perfunctory exercise. This was something that um, someone like Enver Hoxha in Albania was acutely aware of being a danger and did seek active ways to try and make um, the adoption of Marxism-Leninism to be a more real thing, a process that the entire working class was involved in. He did have some success in that, but ultimately even there, um, the system proved too fragile. And so the removal of uh, politics from the army, the making of the army into a supposedly apolitical force with minimal levels of political education and the, the political commissar's power being significantly reduced um, in the period from the Khrushchev onwards was another factor as the Chinese have correctly identified in making sure that this, the, the ideology of the party became more and more hollow and that the this was personified, of course, in the person of Brezhnev, who abandoned all references to Lenin and Marx in his speeches because he said that nobody would ever believe that he had read them. And this speaks to the fact that the the rot in uh, this the hierarchy um, starts in the in the Khrushchev era, but it really accelerates into the Brezhnev era, and that the hierarchy themselves. Are are abandoning the idea, the ideology of Marxism Leninism, and again, this comes from a change in the material base, the development of pro capitalist tendencies, and the fostering of them under Khrushchev, and then the development further under Brezhnev, meant that the a lot of the Soviet hierarchy was actually no longer no longer believed in class struggle no longer saw uh, themselves as leading a class struggle, no longer saw themselves as leading a workers' party. And of course, Gorbachev was just the most obvious outgrowth of that. But the Soviet structure, Soviet structure was ideologically drained because the, um, the tendencies that were dominating it in the 60s and the 70s and into the early 80s became more and more bourgeois in their thinking. And again, Gorbachev was just the most obvious example of this. There were many, many others. And it wasn't just the openly corrupt officials who were the problem. It was others like uh, people like Alexander Yakovlev, who became a key assistant to Gorbachev, who had spent a lot of time in the West and had become completely overawed by the bourgeois ideology of the American-led bloc. And this was true of Gorbachev himself, of course, who traveled extensively in Western Europe and again had become enamored with what he saw as the social democratic states of Western Europe. He was, of course, disastrously wrong in analyzing what these societies actually were. So the Khrushchev and the Brezhnev era see the growth in um, capitalist uh, management techniques within uh, Soviet industry. They see the... Um, the ideological decline of the party, the um, the abandonment of serious ideological work, the abandonment of the development of new perspectives, um, the party version of Marxism-Leninism does become a stale thing which is just repeated by rote, like um, a Catholic priest who's lost his faith still being able to recite the catechism. So by the early 1980s, um, a lot of the hierarchy just simply have become anti-communist in all but name and the only thing that is holding them together is the fact that the um, the party is still the sole means of political expression 
and the of course the secret police still hold a degree of terror over the um uh, over some elements of the what became known as the nomenclatura the uh, senior bureaucrats now you remove the party as the sole source of political power at the same time as you allow capital to flow out of the country and supposedly into it but most of it just left what you essentially do is you remove the final two barriers to these pro-capitalist tendencies um, just openly coming out and declaring themselves and moving towards an aggressive destruction of the Soviet state because their interests had already moved towards being pro-capitalist in the Khrushchev and the Brezhnev era, but they were just about kept in check by the um, Communist Party's monopoly on political power. You remove that, and you remove that in the situation where the working class of the Soviet Union is not politicized to the extent whereby it can offer any real resistance, and the pro-capitalist forces will run riot, as they did. Because, and this again, we need to step back and examine this on the, the, level, of, um, the level of ideological practice, which is that the Leninist party, as described uh, by Lenin in what is to be done, requires a, not only a discipline, which is very important, uh, a discipline and a unity in carrying out the decisions of the party, but it also relies upon a constant tension between the, um, the, the base of the party and its leaders. It relies on a constant interaction between the uh, Lenin, when Lenin wrote that he meant the the activist layer in the party and the leadership. Um, without that, then the uh, the base becomes depoliticized and the leadership becomes adrift, which is what happens in the Soviet Union. See, after um, Khrushchev was sort of the the death of the dialectical relationship between the base and the party hierarchy. The fact that the, the two of them needed to be constantly engaged and almost in a tension with each other to continually refresh the party's ranks. When you remove that tension, as Khrushchev finally did, by killing off um, the 1936 Soviet constitution, um, by seizing power with the assistance of the army, essentially Khrushchev did turn the Soviet Union into, or tried to, into his personal dictatorship. And then future leaders were to come to power by bureaucratic maneuvering. The influence of the working class over the party diminished and diminished and diminished. Those elected to the Supreme Soviet became more and more from the professional layers, the full-time bureaucrats, the senior party officials. Um, the representatives of the working class um, became less and less common. And this was from a position where over 50% of the party in the Stalin era had been uh, from uh, working class positions as to uh, those who were elected to the Supreme Soviet and the other senior political positions. It became more and more that the, the senior levels of the bureaucracy were self-replicating. The um, senior levels attained more and more privileges in the Khrushchev and the Brezhnev era and wanted, of course, to pass those on to their offspring who started to display all the worst and pathetic degenerate tendencies of the West. And this is the world in which Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power. And this is the, this, the, all this is the background to the reason why things collapsed so quickly. It's because central to it was the depoliticization of the party itself, the depoliticization of the working class, 
the removal of working class influence almost entirely from the party hierarchy. And it leads us to the point where what Gorbachev did was just remove the last barriers to an open pro-capitalist restoration, which is exactly what happened in the period of, of his time in office. Now, this leads us to another part of the discussion, which is Gorbachev's expressed desire to convert the Soviet Union into a social democracy. And indeed, in his later period in life, he was a member of the uh, Russian Social Democratic Party, uh, a tiny organization representing almost nobody. Uh, but let's ask the question, like, what if what was he actually proposing here? Was it even possible? Now, as I mentioned previously, Gorbachev had traveled extensively within Western Europe, more so than any other Soviet leader had done, and had become enamored with the what he regarded as the social democratic status of the West, particularly um, France, the Swedish and Nordic model, West Germany. Um, he was apparently very impressed that people could openly criticize the government in um, in France, for instance. Of course, as we all know, you can openly criticize the government all day um, in advanced capitalist societies. It's only when uh, your words start to make a difference that you're actively repressed. Um, <laughs> it seems ridiculous that he would be impressed by that and shows that he clearly had very, very shallow understanding of Marxism and almost no understanding of uh, capitalism. But let's take his idea seriously for a moment. Was it possible? And this is where I come back to my previous statement. He clearly didn't understand the models that he was working off because social democracy in terms of the countries that he openly admired, uh, the Swedish models in particular or, or France, only grew up um, in the 1940s and uh, slightly earlier for Sweden in the 1930s under the influence of the Bolshevik Revolution and the revolutionary period of the Soviet Union, which ends with um, Stalin's death and Khrushchev's ascension. But it's only due to that enormous terror that the uh, example of the Soviet Union inspired within the ruling classes of the West, combined with its appeal to their own working class, particularly after the devastation of World War II, that the ruling class was moved to offer certain social democratic reforms um, after uh, World War II in terms of the building of welfare states. But as I've covered on this show before, of course, these welfare states were often constructed via the hyper-exploitation of the colonized nations and, of course, extensive exploitation of the domestic working class, including the placing of large-scale consumption taxes on the working class. So this thing that Gorbachev thought was amazing was only uh, impressive on the surface level. Like You didn't need to dig too far to find the problems with it. And indeed, the problems with it were already incredibly obvious by the time Gorbachev came to power in 1985. Gorbachev comes to power at a time when Soviet miners were doing extensive benefit collections for the uh, the miners' strike in Britain. The, um, the social democratic compromises which Gorbachev admired so much were all being eroded and destroyed in France, in Britain, and even in Sweden, where, of course, the employers... Uh, destroyed collective bargaining for the Swedish trade unions in the early 1980s. Um, when they opted out of it, they found one rogue union that didn't want to uh, take part in the collective bargaining anymore. They offered them a better deal for a few years and destroyed the collective bargaining system, thus marking the end point of Swedish social democracy, although the full implications of that only became obvious later on in the 90s. So 
Gorbachev was um, a stunningly shallow thinker. If he could look at these um, these examples and think that these could be repeated in the Soviet Union, because they were already dying in the West. They were already dying because the West had gone into an extensive crisis of profitability from the mid-1960s onwards that had been solved by a series of stopgap measures and attacks on the working class, including Nixon's abandoning of the gold standard, uh, Reagan's assault on the final vestiges of American trade union power, Thatcher doing the same in Britain, uh, Mitterrand doing the reverse ferret in France in 1981, and adopting what are now described as the neoliberal policies and actually going from a a radical reformist position to a counter-reform position. So all of these things that Gorbachev said he admired, like he must have just looked at them in the most shallow way possible because there's no way you could have missed the way in which uh, Western European capitalism was going. Now, another thing Gorbachev said that he wanted to do was to peel away Western Europe from the American-led bloc. And of course, you, you don't need to study European capitalism too far to realize that that just was not going to happen. It's not even happened now, 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when all the people who were massively pro-EU on the left in Britain were saying uh, for years, well, now that the Cold War has ended, Europe will go its own way. No, Europe became more dependent on the United States, not less. And this was true then. It was true then because capitalism in France and West Germany, and Britain, and Italy, had only been saved after World War II by the extensive investment in it made by the American imperialists, both in terms of the capital they made available to rebuild um, the, uh, the economies of Western Europe, but also them placing their military at the disposal of the restored ruling classes of Western Europe. The capitalism in in Italy and France was propped up by American capital and American guns. Ultimately, the threat of American military power. For all de Gaulle's pretensions of independence, he owed the restoration of French capitalism to American military power, as the Americans were keen to point out to him whenever he got ideas of independence. And so, again, and we've talked about West Germany on the show before. West Germany was entirely the creation of of Americans employing former officials of the Third Reich um, to build up the new West German state and the new West German army, the Bundeswehr. And so to believe that this essential colony of the United States and Western Europe is a colony of the United States. It was then, it is even more now. It has no political independence. For all the rows that they have periodically, the Western Europeans always bent the knee to the United States because ultimately that's who the paymaster is. They are in this block not as equal players, but as servants of Washington. And that has been true since 1945. And anybody who tells you different is a fucking liar. And Gorbachev, to think that he could somehow peel them away by offering a more moderate stance and offering concessions, proves that he was an idiot. Uh, who didn't understand the power that the United States wields within Western Europe and to this day wields within Western Europe to the point where France and Germany can line up to, to sacrifice their populations for the benefit of the demented occupant of the White House. And so again, Gorbachev's analysis of social democracy was completely shallow, completely ridiculous. And of course, he wasn't alone in that. 
he was he was joined in that by the leaders of the French Communist Party and the Italian Communist Party who had converted their parties formerly from pro, um, advocates of proletarian revolution into reformist social democratic organizations by really the 1960s. Remember, when there was the mass uprising of the French working class in 1968, the leaders of the Communist Party were opposed to revolutionary action, as were the leaders of the Italian Communist Party. And they became more and more pro-capitalist to the point where they became, of course, Euro-communist, openly reformist, and then, in the Italian case, dissolved their whole organization, as Gorbachev was to dissolve the Soviet Union. And so, yes, I believe he was sincere in thinking that he could convert the Soviet Union into some kind of social democracy, even though his ideas on that were completely ridiculous and completely shallow and betrayed a man who had no understanding of the development of capitalism in Western Europe, no understanding of the role played by American imperialism, no understanding as to the nature of the class struggle in those Western European countries or the role played by the imperialism uh, exercised by those countries in building these marvelous social democracies that he loved so much. He was a man who understood nothing nothing at all and this is the even bigger tragedy why by the time that gorbachev caused the collapse of the eastern bloc and the soviet union um, capitalism itself in the west was in deep trouble and had been in a series of crises since the middle 1960s crises which you could have readily discovered had you just done the simple thing of looking at the rates of profit which you're supposed to do um, when analyzing capitalism but apparently none of the geniuses advising gorbachev sought saw to that these people are incredibly shallow ridiculous thinkers they were then they are now they don't look um seriously at the underlying trends within the capitalist system they look at the headline gdp figures they look at the skyscrapers they look at the impressive flashy advertising on the television and they draw judgments from it remember mikhail gorbachev traded a whole bunch of soviet military equipment just to secure a contract with pepsi cola that's the kind of man that we're dealing with here um, but to look now at the uh, the other question, which is, could anything have been different? And it certainly couldn't have been different with Mikhail Gorbachev in charge. He was, as I hope I've demonstrated, um, a product of the system. He was a product of that Khrushchev and Brezhnev era, which saw uh, a, a corrupting and a hollowing out of the hierarchy of the Communist Party. But of course, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union wasn't just uh, corrupt officials. There were millions of ordinary working class citizens who were in the Communist Party who didn't join it for careerist purposes or to get something out of it. They joined it because they wanted to play a part in running the, uh, running, uh, being part of trade union organizations, community organizations, uh, artistic organizations, other cultural organizations. And they wanted to play a part in the political life of their country for very good reasons for for the reasons that they were proud of the achievements of the soviet union they wanted to fight for socialism as they saw it and so you had these millions of people and of course when gorbachev started threatening that system and started to destroy it you got these people started demonstrating in their millions often in moscow and in, uh, in leningrad and other places against gorbachev and for the continuation of the system remember when Gorbachev offered a referendum on the continuation of the Soviet Union, um, 
other than the Baltic states, Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan, the bulk of the states of the Soviet Union all voted very heavily in favor of its continuation. The working class and the overwhelming majority of the Soviet citizenry did not want the dissolving of the Soviet Union, but unfortunately, they had been disempowered to the extent that they had no influence over this rogue um, element at the top and no ability other than a full-on uprising to actually stop him. And as, again, go back to the comments made by Xi Jinping, um, he observed in these comments from 2012 that uh, Gorbachev went on this course of destruction and no one was man enough to stop him. No one was capable of stopping a rogue general secretary because, again, the party had been hollowed out. There was nobody in there capable of actually leading a serious um, opposition to them in a proper Leninist way, which would have been to actually form a faction before the, um, the Congress, build up support within the delegations, and actually oppose Gorbachev inside the structures. There wasn't the capacity of doing that, as those people just simply didn't exist. But thanks to the hollowing out of the party by uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, there was no capacity to actually oppose Gorbachev in the proper way. Um, even when it was obvious that his so-called reform were just uh, careering away towards destruction. And of course, Gorbachev steps up the attacks on Stalin um, in claiming that he was, by attacking Stalin, he was going back to Lenin. It was the same claim that Khrushchev had made. And I'll go into the uh, the defense of Stalin episode in, in the future, but suffice to say for now that attacking Stalin has always been a way of attacking the revolution itself. Um, attacking Stalin is a way of attacking Lenin without saying that you are. Um, that's what the Trotskyists do. It's what the uh, the Khrushchevists do. It's what, of course, Gorbachev did. And it's a way of diminishing the revolution. And of course, Gorbachev declared by the by the early by the early period of his time in office that he no longer believed in class struggle, which is of course fatal. Because to go back to Mao's observation that of course the class struggle continues under socialism, and Gorbachev wasn't the first, of course, in declaring that that class struggle was over in the Soviet Union. Uh, Khrushchev had done that as well, and so all of this paints a portrait of a profound decay which had been accelerated under the different leaders since uh, Khrushchev. And so how could this have been any different? It could only have been different if a leader, a theoretical other leader, had come in and analyzed the situation properly within the Soviet Union and had a proper understanding of the nature of the country he was running, which Gorbachev didn't, and also the nature of the capitalist enemy they were facing, which again, Gorbachev didn't. But also the problems in the party and the way to actually go around them, and to be blunt about it, the only way around the problems facing the Soviet party in the early part of the 1980s was a reinvigoration of the revolution. It was the re-politicization of the working class that could be mobilized and directed against the senior officials. And if that sounds a little bit like Mao's Cultural Revolution, that's because it is. Now, Mao's Cultural Revolution ultimately does not succeed in actually mobilizing the working class. It mobilized radicalized elements of the petty bourgeoisie and only small elements of the working class. For the actual renewal of the Soviet party, you would have needed a mobilization and radicalization of the working class on an enormous scale. Uh, You would have needed to not only do that, but you would have needed to exercise real revolutionary terror over the elements of uh, the pro-capitalist elements within the party itself. And you would have needed to mobilize 
the working class in a way that had not been seen since the 1930s to cleanse the party of these pro-capitalist elements, not just the party, but the hierarchy of the military, the hierarchy of the state security structures. All of that was far beyond the abilities of a man like Mikhail Gorbachev. It would have taken a a real revolutionary to do such a thing. But it was the only way that things were going to be saved. And to go back to the example of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, it might not have succeeded in terms of actually what Mao said he wanted to do, which was a leap to socialism, or to completely purge the pro-capitalist elements of the system out of the system. But it did actually um, do one thing, which was important. It put real life into the party structures of the Chinese party in a way that is, I would argue, still beneficial to them to this day. And one of the things that distinguishes the Chinese party all the way through to today uh, from the Soviet party was that in the Mao period, Mao was presented as this all-powerful dictator by bourgeois critics um, and some of his supposed admirers in the Maoist movement who are just jokers. But he never was that figure. In the even in the revolutionary period, he was dealing with uh, collective leadership with other people such as uh, Lu Shaoqi and Gao Gang and other leaders of the party who were just as uh, influential as he was and with whom he was engaged in constant political battles all the way through the 1950s. Now, this had its negative side in terms of like because the, there was constant battles within the party uh, for the correct line there was a chopping and a changing of the political line of the party leading to confusion in the development of um, Chinese industry, leading to shifts in policy and sudden turns around in policy. But the Chinese party had considerably more uh, democratic life to it within its structures than the Soviet party did by the 1960s. And the Cultural Revolution, for all the chaos that it unleashed and the fact that it ultimately did not succeed did actually help purge the party of some of its rotten elements and even today um to give again gives xi jinping some credit and his predecessors as well they at least do understand the the, this problem if you look at their internal notes and the stuff that even that they put out publicly on the chinese party's websites they do insist on having regular high-level discussions of um, Marxism-Leninism at their Politburo meetings. Now, you can say that this is oh, just learning by rote like the Soviet Party was. It doesn't seem to be, because there seems to be still regular purges of the structure of the party. Um, regular purges of corrupt officials, of course, the occasional execution of a businessman. So at the very least, the Chinese Party has understood the danger of an atrophying and a degeneration and a turning of the party into just a uh, an empty shell where the um, practice of Marxism-Leninism is no longer taken seriously. So it appears that somebody at least paid attention to the decline and fall of the USSR. But to actually get all that back in the Soviet party by the early 1980s would have taken the unleashing of a wave of genuine revolutionary energy, which was there. There were frustrations within the the working class. There were industrial struggles. There was ways in which a skillful leader, a genuine Leninist, not a fake one like Gorbachev, could have uh, re-inspired the working class to actually re-energize the party. There were millions of loyal communists 
you know, who would have responded to a call from a leader to actually take action against the corrupt officialdom. Again, very risky strategy and very much one that it would have taken a a not just one leader, but a layer of dedicated Leninist revolutionaries to actually carry out this kind of purge within the party. It would have taken the exercise of genuine revolutionary terror to conquer and defeat the pro-capitalist elements. But it would have been the only way to actually salvage the situation uh, because anything else would have either just led to more stagnation or, like Gorbachev, led to a rapid collapse. It would have taken the restoration of um, terror on a scale not seen since the Stalin era, really, to actually make sure that those elements in the party were defeated. And by the way, if you listen to the podcast long enough, you'll know that I do. I don't see that. Um, I don't see political terror as a bad thing. Um, the usage of it can be necessary in revolutionary situations to defeat your enemies. And the, to those who, scry, who, cre, who cry out that this is too much, the, um, this is anti-human, etc. What is more anti-human than what was done to the Soviet peoples after Gorbachev's reign? Why is that? The deaths of millions upon millions and the reduction to millions more, uh, the reduction of millions more to poverty and, de and uh, degenerate practices, the growth of prostitution, the massive growth of drug addiction, alcoholism, the collapse of so many industries, the collapse of so many lives. How is that in any way better. It's just better because it helps soft leftists in the West sleep better at night because it's something that's happening far away from them and they don't get into awkward conversations at dinner parties about um, the, the naughty men in the East uh, inflicting terror on those poor Democrats. This is the essential uh, problem with, with, of course, the Western left. It's a bunch of soft, petty bourgeois idiots who can't even handle a difficult conversation, never mind revolutionary action. But again, to return to my point, this is um, what would have been the only thing that would have restored life to the, the USSR. The Chinese, in a way, um, found found a way to restore themselves partly through um, the terror of the Cultural Revolution and the response to it, and have actually kept regular purges going of their structure ever since then. And certainly they increased those after the events of 1989, which, of course... I'll mention in passing that, of course, Deng Xiaoping made a famous comment about Gorbachev when he said, after meeting him in 1989, this man appears very smart, but he is actually very stupid. And, of course, that really does sum up Gorbachev and his era in office and his legacy. It was a man who, like his predecessor Khrushchev, and like many reformist leaders in the West, thought of them himself as incredibly clever thought that he could outmaneuver all these um, these these people in the party and that he could maneuver his way towards um, the social democracy that I will say he did profoundly believe in. But he was a fool. He was a fool because he didn't understand the system that he was supposedly in charge of. He didn't understand the system that was against him in capitalism. And he didn't understand the forces that he would unleash by doing what he did within the Soviet party. So Mikhail Gorbachev has died at a time when, of course, his legacy is exploding all around us. Um, he's, one of his legacies is the Ukraine war. Another one of his legacies is the war in Artsakh, uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Others of his legacies are the dictatorships that run the Central Asian countries, um, who, have t who have signed over large portions of their economy to Western capitalism. Other of his legacies are the supposedly independent Baltic states, 
that drain of their population every year where the birth rate has collapsed, the industries have all been asset stripped and the population drifts in hopelessness with the only trend within it being the, the, that of the ultra-bourgeois trend, fascism. Look at his legacy in Eastern Europe where output collapsed in half over the 10 years after the collapse of communism. Look at the legacy of the, those who fought along the same lines as him in Yugoslavia. Again, deindustrialization, degeneration, collapse, and everything that followed from that. War, terror, the restoration of the most reactionary forms of political expression, the restoration in Russia itself of uh, things like uh, the worst elements of reactionary czarism and support for that. Everywhere you turn, the legacy is negative. Everywhere you turn, you see the legacy of the collapse of the first socialist state, the dominance of American imperialism at a time when, in actuality, it was weakening due to having gone through an extended period of crisis. Gorbachev gave them an unbelievable gift, the gift of 30 years of almost unchallenged dominance, and only now are they starting to come undone as the contradictions that they've built up in their system over two generations finally start to bend the capitalist system in the United States completely out of shape and its political system goes completely senile with it. This is the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev. As much as the imperialists are guilty of all the wars of aggression that they've waged in the last 30 years, it is equally deserving that we hang the guilt for all of those wars around his neck and others of his kind, like Yakovlev, and before them Brezhnev and Khrushchev. All of these men left nothing but utter destruction in their wake, and all of them, along with the leaders of the Western European Communist parties, who did so much to stop revolutions in the West that could have led to different outcomes in the East as well, all of these cretins deserve to be remembered as, no as nothing other than stinking wretched traitors who death did not find soon enough. I'll end with this quote. When it comes to be our turn again, we will not apologize for the terror, and we never should. Thank you for listening.